So just taking a minute, we all grew up, or I did, anyway, anyone as old, as ancient as me, grew up in a world that was uh, you know, ruled by two superpowers. And then that all collapsed. So we had the capitalist world, commies. Right? That all collapsed into this lovely end of history thing. You know, Francis Fukuyama, I don't know if any of you were subjected to that stuff at uni. Awful, awful stuff. Pure ideology, right? But the lesson that was given to us was that there's no other way of organizing a society that is functional apart from the one that you're familiar with because, hey, we won. And that's not true. It is vastly more complex and ambiguous out there in reality than what most people are exposed to in the financial commentariat in particular, which is you know, real belly of the beast stuff in terms of ideology. What do I mean by that? You will often hear stuff about rule of law and very, very functional societies that don't look like society, the society you live in, and it's crap. It's absolute rubbish. Please think about thousands of years of continuously existing civilizations that have managed to organize themselves very well without any of your intervention, right? And think about what that rule of law thing means. It's, it's, it, it's a pretty long bow to draw, in my view. But let's talk about dollars and cents. I've included Australia here, you know, why not? We're in Australia, but this is just simple PEs, next 12 months, consensus numbers. Where's the US? It's right at the top next to India, which is growing, you know, something like six times the rate. Right? So that's the market we all want to have 60% of our global money in. That's cool. And what are you getting for it? About the slowest rate of growth of most markets of the top 20. Not quite the slowest, but it's right up there. And Australia's right next to it. That's cool. I mean, make, you know, you pays your money, you pays, makes your choice. But that's not a great idea from where I sit. And it's largely driven by familiarity, safety. I feel safe, so I'll, go, I'll just keep doing it. And it's worked. And how it has worked. So there's sort of 20 plus years of MISCI US, MISCI rest of the world. All of the returns have gone to this one market. So in this cycle, US has killed the rest of the world and it feels natural because it's gone for a long time. Also, it feels like there's been a correction. <laughs> nice correction. Those cycles all revert. Every single time, with a probability of one, they revert, but this one's different. Maybe, always possible. So in the prior cycle, the 2000 cycle, US gapped the rest of the world by about 100%. This one's 250%. So it's a very long cycle, it's a very strong cycle. That cycle is over. Various people are struggling to realize that, but it is over. Talked about that last year. Same all applies. All right, you can go back and check all that. And yeah, it's a cycle. So let, let's just think about that. We have an ideology that informs investor sentiment and behavior. We've got clustering around this one market that's dominated global returns forever. 
and it feels safe. It feels like that's the right thing to do, right? And it could be, I don't know, you don't either. What I'm telling you is it looks a hell of a lot like a cycle and you need to have much more respect for how complex and ambiguous the world genuinely is than to settle back on tropes like, well, you know, it's just because political risk is lower in the market that I'm most exposed to. Why? Why? Why was that political risk so high in 1980 when the PE of the market was eight? What was fundamentally different about the US then? Anyone, politically? Nothing, nothing. It's just a cycle. We've been here before. So my sort of favorite hit story of cycles is Japan. You know, my, my old man read the Book of Five Rings when I was a kid and I picked it up and thought it was a smart thing to read as well. Book of Five Rings is a, uh, a manual written by a guy called Miyamoto Musashi about how to be a samurai and corporate types read it in the 80s because it gave us wonderful insight, apparently, into how to understand corporate Japan. What a waste of time, right? But we, we resorted to that kind of stuff because of the industrial dominance of this place. But was it industrial dominance or was it just a spectacular bubble? Well, you've all been there before. You know, it was a spectacular bubble. So this is Miski Japan versus Miski rest of the world. Pretty impressive outperformance. If you'd decided to expose your client's money to Japan at any time in the sort of late 80s and not to the rest of the world because of the industrial dominance or the cultural differences or whatever the explanation you had at that time, you went on to do about one and a half times your money in the subsequent 30 years versus 19 times your money just missed the rest of the world. Cycles are really dangerous and they get more and more dangerous as they get more and more mature. And by gosh, does this cycle right now look mature to me, especially with the behavior of early this year, which I won't go into great length about, but it looks a hell of a lot like a bear market rally prompted by positioning and with massive retail participation and gearing in the options market as well. No landing? Maybe, you know, maybe. Now I want to really test you. Uh, I'm going to give you an investment idea that's going to make you vomit. That's cool. That's fine. Before I go there, I want to give you a little quiz. It's a real little, you know, little test your mental acuity. You don't have to sing out the answers because you're not going to win any prizes if you get them right. What's one plus one? The sky is. What's the capital of Moscow? What's the square root of seven million? Stop. What just happened in your brain and your physiology is very different in the fourth question versus the other three. The first three are all system one thinking. It's very important that we do it. It's why we dominate the planet, what keeps us alive. And the fourth question, if you would choose to engage, because most people presented with a question like that will just go, oh, too hard, and they'll just move on, right? Because that's system one thinking. I don't want to do that. And evolutionarily, it's a really good idea. So if there's a snake in front of you, you don't want to be thinking about the square root of 7 million. Getting chased by a bear is not going to help you, right? So your genes don't survive. We don't live in that world anymore. So what happens when you have to engage with a difficult problem like that is your pulse goes up, your skin temperature rises just slightly. There is, a, there is an impost, an energetic impost, as your brain takes up more of the energy in your body than normal. 
So there's a reason you don't do it. It doesn't make it wrong, right, that we all live most of the time in system one thought, but it makes it really dangerous when you come to quantitative pursuits. And if you want to get this right for you and your clients in coming decades, you'd better get used to using system two thought. Because sim simple beta isn't going to work, right? So, so just think about that PE chart where the US sat up the top at 18 and just think through how that can be possible in a world where the cost of capital a year ago was zero and now it's five. Just think it through. How can you pay the same PE for a trucking stock, uh, a manufacturer, a healthcare stock as you were paying in a world that looked as different as it did, say, two years ago, say, four years ago, and think through why that is happening. But now let's do the reverse. Let's engage in some truly vomitous investment ideas. There is no bubble in Japanese property pricing. Have Japanese property prices gone up a lot in nominal terms? You bet. It's a very rapidly growing economy. Why would they not? So now I'm going to ask you just to look at the lines in front of you by year and try to find the years where residential property prices go up by more than nominal GDP. Not many of them, folks. But let's do the easy thing and index it. So this is nominal GDP. So the size, I could use GNP, but it's annoying. But so that's the size, the income that's you know, available in the economy and residential property prices are the sort of laggardly darker line down the bottom. That's a pretty boring bubble folks. But don't take my word for it. This is just ripped straight from The Economist. Don't tell anyone. I'm sure I get in trouble, but I've paid them hundreds and hundreds of dollars over the years, so I'm sure you know, they won't mind. For the data, we have an entire series for, which is a bit over 11 years. Chinese property prices in real terms have been outperformed by Germany, for God's sake. So this is the locus of some amazing property bubble, is it? It's not. And you can guess where the shaded lines are where New Zealand and Canada sits. Interestingly, Australia's right in the middle there in that collection. But maybe it's a different kind of bubble. Maybe it's an activity bubble where we've massively overbuilt. And now we're going to have to do a bit of system to drudgery. Right? And also, we're going to have to engage in a bit of history. So I want you to think about China in, say, 1985. There is no ownership of residential property, zero. But there is zero homelessness near as that. There's a bit, but it's pretty marginal. So what's happening there? Right, that's not long ago, not for me, right? Maybe for some of you it's a long time ago. Your house was provided to you by the state, linked usually to your place of employment. It was communist, right? Like, you know, think it through. So then in the 1990s, there's a series of reforms ending in 1998 when that system is abolished finally. Typical Chinese fashion, there's a whole bunch of stage posts along the way. But 98 is kind of the end of it where 
the system of provision of rental accommodation to a worker linked to your job is made illegal. From that point forward, we've developed all of the residential property that exists today in China. So you've grafted on a system that had full universal housing, right? You've, you've grafted on the private property sector, right? So it's, it's extraordinarily different to any residential housing market that you would be used to. It's a bit more like some of the Scandies, where you have, or a bit more like Singapore, right? Where you have large non-market segments of the housing market. It's a bit more like that than what any of us are used to. History lesson over. Now let's do the system two drudgery. Since that time, there has been built out about 17 billion square meters of housing, of you know, residential housing in China. That's the entire modern housing stock of China. And actually, a lot of it's not that modern. Anyway, the early stuff in the mid 90s wasn't very good. So that is a huge number, but let's try and break it down. There's 1.4 billion people there, should be relatively familiar. About 60% of that 1.4 billion, right, is in cities. There's around about three people per household. It's a bit less than that these days. And there's around about 40 meters squared per person in an urban setting. So what does all that boil out at? I'll save you the, the drudgery. Of the roughly 875 million people who live in cities today in China, a little over half are in modern housing. And when I say modern housing, that means you're sharing, if, if you're not in the modern housing, that means you're sharing your bathroom and your kitchen with multiple other families, generally. Now that kind of kibbutz style thing might be fun for a while. I wouldn't recommend it as a lifestyle, right? And most people in China don't want to be in that housing either. So a whole bunch of equity issues around that in particular with migrant workers. So those who don't own hukou, uh, hold a hukou. So I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm just describing what the system is. Let's go back to the 17 billion number. So there's about 100 meters squared per house per dwelling unit. Can we cross-check that? Yeah, that's about the same as Japan, right? So in the modern housing stock, there's about 100 meters per house. So 17 billion is about 170 million houses that have ever been built in the history of modern China. And there's three people in each of them. So is there a massive glut of housing in China? I'll leave it to you to think through. But let's not stop there because we're not that urbanized, right? So Japan's 90, low 90s urbanization, South Korea's mid 80s urbanization, Malaysia with a you know, not dissimilar rate of GDP per capita, a little bit higher, is about 80% urbanized, right? So if we have a sh gently shrinking population and we get to something like an 80% urbanization rate, there's another couple of hundred people, a million people at least, who are going to come into Chinese cities as well. Presumably, they're going to want modern housing stock and the state wants to provide it for them, right? That last bit's important. What the state wants in China is very important because 
let's get over the rule of law thing and I can't invest there and their commies and all that. Maybe as a default thing, when you hear an idea about China, the first thing that pops into your mind shouldn't be, it doesn't work, it's a fraud, it's BS, it's hopeless. It's a... Maybe it should be, they just achieved an economic miracle in 40 years and I need to take them pretty seriously. Maybe that's the first thing that should pop into your mind if you're going to do any system one thinking about this place. But here's your actual inventory number in metres. So it goes back to 2002. There is no glut of housing in China. You can see it in the secondary market. So what gets quoted around house prices going down is usually the primary market. So it's like an IPO for houses. So it's a developer, they list a new house, right? And then the prices of those have gone down. The secondary market's been pretty, pretty resilient, right? So why do we care? There's some money to be made here, folks, because a lot of companies that do this stuff. There's also a reform drive that's changing the way this market works. And we've seen a few of these before. We saw it in steel. We saw it in aluminium. We saw it in coal. We saw it in insurance. Usually what the state does is it lets sort of 100 flowers bloom, to quote good old Chairman Mao, and then it cuts the throats of about 98 of them after 20 odd years of no regulation and blah, 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 and the market gravitates to large, well-capitalized and good. That tends to be what happened. That is exactly what's happening now in the property market in China. So companies like this guy, 1109HK, China Resources Land, it's been around for a little while. I'll show you its track record in a second. It's got you know sort of 15 to 25% uh, ROEs. Its balance sheet is impeccable. Four-year land bank, pretty good sort of business. I'm buying that today, and you can too, on five, on a divvy of five, about seven times earnings and one times book. And the book's full of property at unimproved price. So the book's worth something. So here's your track record. This stock was listed in 2000 odd, just before actually late 90s in Hong Kong. From listing, it's roughly a 20 bagger in terms of total shareholder return. 20 year return is 100x total shareholder return. So if you've done better than that with a whole bunch of your investments, cool, that's great. But there's not many that have. This is a serious business. And you can buy it for as cheap as you've ever bought it on seven times earnings and one times book. So sometimes we're going to have to deal with vomitous ideas to find cheap stuff in a big old complicated ambiguous world. This is one of those times. And just more broadly in China, it sort of feels like, and I see it repeated a lot, oh, bloody China's gone nowhere in 15 years. Yeah, that's right. It's all cycles, folks. My contention to you is you probably want to be thinking about buying stuff at the start of its cycle, not at the end. When everyone hates it, it's no one there, and it's pretty cheap. Also, this market does compound. You do make money here. But you make it in a particular way. Look at it. You, make, you have these roaring sort of rallies, big collapses, back to a slightly higher level. And it sits there and goes nowhere for ages, and then roaring rallies. You do have to take this place kind of seriously, but you also have to understand it. It's complex. It's ambiguous. But quickly, back to Japan, because you'll all know that Japan's a loser. It's hopeless, right? It's, it's just, it doesn't grow. It's all useless. It's terrible. Has anyone been there? Yeah, it's falling apart, isn't it? I love this demographics as destiny stuff because it's bullshit. Think about your business. There's not enough workers in the system. 
So you just sit there and you keep trying to hire workers, do you? You're not going to add to your capital stocks. You're not going to use technology better. You're not going to change the way you do things. If you're a big manufacturer, you're not going to invest overseas, are you? It's so dumb. It's so dumb. Let's draw a, a sort of line there. The population, that's total aggregate population, peaks in 2010. This is Japanese corporate profits. Big old arrow tells you where the population peaks. Profits explode in Japanese corporate land at the time that the population peaks. It's not causal, I'm not saying that. It's non-causal, right? It's just that this demographics is destiny thing. It doesn't make any sense, just think about it. Think about your own business. And this is Japanese stocks, so this is Niski Japan, up two and a half fold in 10 years, that's not bad. I know of other funds have done a bit better than that, so sort of 18 times in 20 years, that's not terrible. So finally, you can gravitate to light blue guys. It's going to feel safe. It's going to, you're going to be, have lots of company. It's going to be lovely. My contention to you is you're probably at the end of that cycle. Cost of capital is very different, right? Globalization thing is all a bit questionable now. So let's think about how popular these businesses can be. And then look at the sort of lavender colored guys. Like they're pretty cheap. And you do get a bit of earnings growth. China at the top and Japan down the bottom. But you are going to be forced to get more serious if you want to make returns in the next couple of decades, I think we think. Much of the world is very cheap. You are going to have to take ambiguity and complexity seriously to make proper money for your clients. And let me say, state the reverse just boldly. That Japan cycle where it went nowhere for 20, 30 years, the US cycle prior to that from 2000 through where you didn't make a new high for 15 years, folks, you're there. You're there. I might be wrong, but I just ask you to go and look at corporate profit growth, margins, the price you're paying for those, right? Retail participation, etc. Go and look at what I said last year. It's all true. You are setting yourself up to make no money for decadal periods of time if you follow the crowd. You're going to have to get serious about complexity and ambiguity. I mean, there's been huge misallocation of capital in China. That occurs everywhere. I mean, that's sort of fine. Like, get a helmet, get on with life. You know, it's tough out there. The underlying reality, though, is there's a lot of capital that's been pretty well allocated, right? Because it's compounding and getting a return. I mean, you can see the businesses. They're changing the world that you live in, right? Like, have you ever heard of Alibaba? Pretty obvious. Like, can you pay with Alipay all over the world? Yep. I mean, there's something going on there that's kind of working. Um, but sort of more basically than that, all that's being described there is imperfection. And I can describe imperfection about any economic system because it's comprised of people. Right? So that's what these cycles are. That's why, you know, in 1982, when Johnny Bogle wanted to raise a bit of money for Vanguard, he, couldn't, he could hardly raise a buck. He had a, he had a bought deal to do 250 million bucks and he could raise like 12. Because he was going around saying, oh, I'm just going to chuck money into the, into the index. It's going to go up. And everyone looked at him and went, John, the index hasn't gone up for 15 years. So that's a stupid idea. Right? That's, so everyone's just, you know, it, it's morning in America. That's Reagan's slogan, right? Like, like Malays forever, the Simpsons thing about, Johnny, uh, about Jimmy Carter. Right? That, that stuff is all just description of imperfection. And then we forget all that 
when the cycle's mature and everything looks good. And remember, China was the most expensive equity market in the world in 2007. Uh, it's probably a better system now than it was then. The political risk stuff I find fascinating. I, th I think there's some sort of belief that markets price political risk. Well, the most expensive equity market in the world is India. There's no political risk in India. Really? Like, seriously? Can anyone mount that argument? They sort of have an undeclared war ongoing with Pakistan over Kashmir. It's a nuclear armed power, and it has border skirmishes with China once every decade. But that's on 18 times, and I can go and buy China for nine. And also, where does India get all its weapons from? Russia. So are we getting the point that this is kind of a complex and ambiguous world? What do we expect? We just expect to walk around and go like, oh, no, sorry, fellas. I know you've had a you know, 3,000 year continuous civilization and have been the most successful economic model in human history, but let me tell you how it all works. And you have to be on our side. Mm. That is what is going on now, I think. It's a great question. I, I, I don't have a ready answer for it. If you sort of optimize for earnings growth and, and value, you'd probably end up pretty, pretty heavily exposed to China, South Korea. Uh, I'm sort of struggling beyond there. Uh, if I wanted a whole lot of genuine emerging market risk, I'd buy Australia and Canada. Uh, like commodity exposures, trade exposed currency, small open, and pretty good institutions. So why would I bother Latin America and Africa? I wouldn't. Uh, we kind of don't. Um, but if I want sort of very rapid compounding of corporate earnings in relatively organized systems, like China's pretty important. So we, we cannot just dwell in the comfort of the familiar and think that, well, places that have an organizational system that looks like mine is where I can make all my returns. There'll be a time for that. That's all good. You are dealing with the most indebted systems with now actually quite slow population growth with incredibly high asset prices. Or you have to take complexity and ambiguity seriously. Right? So when we talk about EM, when we talk about China, when we talk about India, when we talk about any of these places, they are going to feel uncomfortable. They kind of have to. Right? So all of these issues are real. They don't go away. And you can persist in a world that says they're not real, and it's all so simple because I have all the answers because I, you know, I went to Yale or whatever. Or you can actually take different systems seriously, and I'd strongly encourage you to take those other systems seriously.